You are listening to the India in Focus podcast, jointly brought to you by the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University and the Times of India. Hello and welcome to COVID Chronicles, part of the India in Focus podcast. My name is Sachit Balsari. We have reached the one-year mark and there are still conversations around the world about masking. In the United States, the use of face masks was intensely politicized, precluding the application of what may have been a simple yet effective mitigation tool. In January 2021, an op-ed in the Washington Post called for everyone to have access to N95s. Masking, say scientists, serves two purposes. It prevents those with infection from spreading the virus and prevents the uninfected from breathing in large doses of virus when exposed to it. Early in the pandemic, Siddharth Mukherjee, most well-known for his book, The Emperor of All Maladies, had written in The New Yorker that inoculum is likely to play a large role. That is, the bigger the exposure, the more devastating the illness is likely to be. It turns out that he was probably right. In an article in the New England Journal of Medicine last month, authors went so far as to suggest that masks may in fact be quietly helping with herd immunity by resulting in low-grade or asymptomatic infections where people may otherwise have had more severe illness. That is a lot to process for most of us. At this critical time in the pandemic, when we have run out of other options and the virus has spread across urban and rural South Asia, is it wise to be speaking about masking? To answer this question, we have with us today, Mushfiq Mubarak, Professor of Economics at Yale University and co-chair of the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab's Urban Services Initiative. Their team is examining this very question. Does masking work? Mushwick, welcome. Uh, thank you for having me, Sajid. Mushwick, why is an economist looking at masking? The problem of masking and how to uh, address the low usage of masks that we see around the world, it's both a medical science and a social science problem. Um, so the reason is that, uh, you know, we need to establish whether masks actually improve health outcomes, as you were just talking about. But it turns out we've also learned that it's equally challenging for us to figure out how to get people to wear masks consistently, how to change mask wearing norms and establish consistent norms in a community because it's the community level mask wearing that works. It's, it's not yet clear from, from data whether masks are protective for the wearer or how protective they are, but it is uh, quite um, you know, widely accepted that community level mask wearing are protective of each other, right? So we, we reduce transmission rates. So we started thinking about this problem back in April as the pandemic hit. And initially we uh, had an agreement with a funder who was really interested in studying this problem at large scale. So if we were to distribute masks to large numbers of people in South Asia, uh, would that reduce COVID infection rates? After that discussion, you know, we started collecting data in Bangladesh, in rural Bangladesh, to figure out what was happening in rural Nepal as well. Uh, with respect to masking and other social distancing behaviors. And something we learned that was quite surprising is that between say late March and late April, like as um, COVID-19 became well-known in the South Asian communities, the masking rates uh, shot up uh, and people reporting to us that they had masks, uh, that they were wearing masks, shot up from essentially 0% say in mid-March when nobody was wearing masks to up to like 80, 90, 95% in some communities uh, by late April. Um, and so that was a that was a big surprise. And so once that happened, I actually started thinking about things a little bit differently. That oh maybe this is a problem that we don't need any external intervention to solve. People have already figured it out. 
and they have gone in and uh, um, addressed the problem for themselves. So no external intervention is actually required here. So we actually paused, we said, okay, no, let's not in implement this because you know this money might be better spent on elsewhere. Well, we know that that masks uh, work. There are all these YouTube videos of you know folks um, spraying aerosols on masks and showing that that they don't uh, cross uh, the barrier. Why do you need to you know go out in the field and and observe people? Don't we already know that masks work? Here's the interesting thing that happened. So we started getting other sort of anecdotal information from. Um, from other research groups uh, like ICDDRB, um, uh, there's, a, there's a group at um, Stanford Medical School headed by Steve Luby. And we learned that they were finding that no, actually mass wearing rates don't seem that high, right? It's, 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 it's curious that you're seeing such high rates in your inner data. So then, you know, we, we then said, okay, let, maybe it's sort of something like social desirability bias. So when I ask people, are you wearing a mask? They say yes, even if they're not, right? So then we started re-asking the question as, oh, do you see other people around you wearing masks? Not asking about their own behavior, but others' behavior. But even then we're seeing, you know, people saying, yeah, um, other people seem to, like at set, no, the numbers came down, maybe at 75% or 80% rate, they seem to be, uh, they ha to have masks. Okay, and then we went a step further and said, okay, let's go and do some direct observation ourselves. So we basically stationed you know, hundreds of people at thousands of points around the country at mosques uh, in, in Bangladesh, at mosques in, um, in markets, like at you know, village entry exit points, et cetera. And then what we observed was something quite different. This is uh, now in May. Um, we see that maybe about 30% of people were wearing masks, okay? So essentially, it was true that most people had a mask, but about two thirds of the time, they were just keeping it in their pocket, right? So actual mask wearing rates were actually a lot lower. And that's what you really need to, to address the public health issue. And as, as we continued collecting data, the rates actually started coming down even more, right? And then if you start doing a bit more sophisticated analysis where you say, um, okay, let's see if people are properly wearing their masks. You know, the proper wear, wear would have to have both the nose and the, and the mouth covered and not just uh, covering their chin. Once you use the criteria being properly wearing masks, it appears that the rates are in the teens. So maybe 10, 15% of people are probably wearing masks. So that led to us uh, reopening the trial and saying, okay, look, this is a problem that still needs uh, our attention. So let's... Um, uh, let's 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 think about how can we can get people to wear masks, and that's where the idea for the study came from. Wow, that's a huge difference between eighty to ninety percent folks uh, saying they're using masks, and then an, an observation that that uh, you know concludes that less than one in five people are wearing wearing masking. So Mushvik, um, the the logistics of this sound daunting. You mentioned. Uh, deploying hundreds of observers at thousands of locations. H how do you actually go about doing this? How do you know that your observers are in the right locations, not biased? What is the scale of which you're talking about? Did you do this on one day? Did you do this on several days? Because um, if you are going to turn around and, and tell policymakers or the uh, governments of countries uh, that only 10 or 15% um, of their population is masking. How do you ensure um, that the recipients trust your message? 
Right. So in order to answer these questions, these are, of course, um, you've hit on the right set of challenges. These are very complex challenges of how to get people to wear masks, how do we measure whether masks are actually effective, how do we make the norm stick. Um, and, uh, you know, so we needed to address all these challenges all at once and, we, and, and do it in large scale. Uh, and I'll explain the importance of scale in a second. Uh, and so we uh, implemented a, a large-scale randomized control trial all over uh, rural Bangladesh in order to answer these questions. And so a randomized control trial, so just like in the medical sciences, uh, you know, you give some treatment, uh, uh, you know, such as a pill to a treatment group, or and then you and you have a control group that doesn't receive the exact same treatment, and then you track uh, their outcomes. It could be health outcomes, it could be mass wearing outcomes over time. And so this is a method that was popularized, uh, in, you know, started in the medical sciences, popularized in the social sciences, and most recently honored with a, with a Nobel Prize to uh, Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, and uh, Michael Kramer. So um, what we learned is that, look, to solve the masking problem, right, we do need to answer the question, are masks reducing COVID transmission? We also need to answer the question, are masks protective for the wearer, right? So those are kind of public health epidemiology questions. And therefore in our team, we have uh, representatives from Stanford Medical School and also engineers, you know, who are experts at mask design and testing of filtration efficiency of masks, et cetera. So for the medical questions, we have the right set of experts leading that work. But there's another problem here, which is we also need to get people to wear masks because masks are going to be effective only to the extent that they're actually adopted and used regularly. Right? And there's an important set of social science questions there, which is how do you change behavior? Because as we know from a um, you know, broad class of technologies, products, behaviors, like improved cook stoves, insecticide-treated bed nets, or even toilets in rural India, right? That it's very difficult for us to change behavior, get people away from what they used to do, like open defecation, and into using toilets or moving away from uh, stoves that, you know, use biomass and produce a lot of smoke and into uh, using cleaner burning stoves that are healthier for you and your family, right? And masks are a similar problem. Like how do you get people to move from not wearing masks to wearing it, right? And so we've been doing a lot of research to understand, you know, what are the set of conditions we need to put in place in rural communities to encourage mask usage consistently. Right? And it turns out that that challenge is it's quite complex. Um, uh, it's because, you know, it's not enough for us to just distribute masks, right? So you might think, you know, people aren't wearing masks because they don't have one, but it turns out that's probably a small part of the challenge. It would be useful for us to go door to door and distribute masks, and we are doing that, but you need to do a lot more beyond that. So beyond distributing masks, we're also employing mask promoters in all these villages, right? So people who are members of the community and sometimes outsiders, right? Wearing a uniform for the, um, for the implementer, uh, you know, who's distributing the masks and reminding people that they should wear it, reminding people about the importance of doing it, um, you know, standing at the village entry exit points and as people are walking out reminding them okay why don't you have your mask or if you have it in your pocket please put it on or here's a replacement mask like a cheaper one that you can use this time but please don't forget it next time right? um, then there's also uh, enforcement that needs to happen at high risk places such as at markets and mosques so there we're working with the imam at mosques and his team 
to say, you know, during your khutbah, the, uh, you know, the sermon that's given before prayer start, can you mention the importance of wearing masks and that it's required for people to, who come into this mosque uh, to, to, to keep their masks on? Um, you also need to catch people at the entrance and make sure that everybody coming in is wearing a mask. Uh, at the market, which is another sort of high density, high traffic area, you want to make sure people are mask, wearing masks there. So we work through the local uh, committees. So in Bangla, it's a Dogan Malik Shamiti, like um, the community of owners of, of the stalls at that market, making sure that all their staff, the vendors, are consistently wearing masks. And again, standing at the entrance and exits and making sure that people are uh, are, are wearing masks. Uh, so, so it's a combination of, you know, distribution, but also encouraging behavior change and some information, you know, programming uh, around why it's important and explaining people why, why it's important, and then doing some monitoring and enforcement. So that entire package seems to be necessary. So we've, um, you know, the ultimate trial is going to be very large scale. We're working with a sample of 700,000 people in Bangladesh, uh, with half being in a treatment group. So about 350,000 households will be getting all this programming, and then the other half will have um, uh, we'll have status quo, like, you know, many people will be wearing masks, and we were not, but we're not going to be uh, intervening there in any way. And then within, you know, there's a lot of other questions uh, that are unclear still, and we'd like to um, delve into through this trial. So one is, you know, what type of masks uh, are most effective and cost effective? Okay, so you have these cloth masks that are reusable, right? Uh, and the fact that they're reusable and washable means that people can hold on to them for a long time, and maybe that's the right solution. However, cloth masks are also about five times more expensive than surgical masks. Uh, so they're about 50 taka as opposed to 10 taka. And the surgical masks, we've done you know, uh, tests in our engineering labs to, learn, to show that you can wash these surgical masks up to five or six times, and their filtration efficiency is broadly retained. So it's possible that we might be able to reach a lot more people quickly if we use a mask that is one-fifth as expensive, but still effective, right? So that's one question that we're trying to learn about. And the way we do it is in the treatment group, we randomly separate them into two different subgroups. One group of villages receive um, surgical masks, the other group receives cloth masks. And then finally, you know, you might think that there might be cheap, you know, simple interventions you can add to this that can get people to uh, wear masks consistently. So just as one example, you know, what happens if you were to ask people to make a commitment, a verbal commitment, yes, I'm going to make, wear a mask, right? And what happens given that social norms is what we need to change, right? If we then publicize that commitment, uh, saying that, okay, you you made a commitment, we're gonna use your name when we visit other households in the village that this, this person has made a commitment to wear masks. And here's a sticker that we'll put on your, uh, like a poster we'll put on your uh, wall that, sh that shows to others that you're a mask wearing household, right? Even if um, folks see the value in, in wearing masks, uh, nine months into the pandemic, there seems to be a lot of fatigue around wearing masks and folks getting lazy and pulling their you know, masks down and wearing chin masks instead of face masks. Um, how do you address uh, the issue of incentivizing people to continue to wear masks? Are there examples where this is... Uh, uh, worked in other public health interventions um, elsewhere in the world? Um, we're, we're trying out many different little interventions. In some villages, we're trying out uh, providing certificates or monetary incentives 
uh, to the village or to the leaders, right? Depending on the village to see like if incentives are paid on the basis of, yes, this is a, this is a village where we're monitoring and we've learned that mask wearing rates have gone up a lot, right? Uh, does that help? And these ideas are coming also from, you know, some things in uh, some, some other interventions that have been tried out in India, such as certificates for open defecation free villages, right? Uh, so we're trying out all of these things to learn, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And the reason to try this out is, you know, we want to ultimately come up with the most cost effective package, right? So that when this project gets replicated in the rest of Bangladesh, hopefully get scaled up in the rest of Bangladesh or in other parts of South Asia or Africa, right? That we have some rigorous knowledge of what works and how to cost effectively address the problem. Mushwick, from what you're describing, the simple act of, um, you know, wearing um, a facial covering, um, a cloth mask or, or a surgical mask, uh, that seems like a very simple and elegant public health intervention, uh, now seems, um, as, as with most um, societal behavioral change interventions, uh, more complex. How much does this cost? What what do you describe um, is is straight out of um, you know implementation science textbooks. You incentivize people. You have uh, promoters in the community. Uh, you have uh, you know societal prompts, economic prompts uh, to encourage people to change behavior. You mentioned three hundred fifty thousand um, uh, folks will be. You mentioned that 350,000 people will be the recipient of these um, thorough interventions uh, to promote masking. Uh, but if, if one were to scale that across uh, South Asia, we're looking at, um, you know, nearly 2 billion people. Um, is, is this scalable? What does it cost? A surgical mask or a cloth mask may cost 10 or 15 tacos. But what does this package of interventions that you talk about cost for, say, um, an average size village in South Asia? Yeah, so in um, public health and in economics, we often calculate, you know, what is the dollar cost per life saved or per year of disability adjusted life year saved, daily saved. And based on our current knowledge of how effective masks are, right, this would represent, I think, even accounting for all the costs associated with getting, you know, people to wear masks and getting all that behavior change, this would end up representing one of the best buys in public health and in terms of the dollars it costs us to save, save a life. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, if uh, this project demonstrates that um, masks are, are effective at reducing COVID transmission, uh, then this would be a highly cost-effective way for us to address this important public health challenge, even relative to other um, good ways that the world has already invested in, in, in trying to protect human life. Right? And now in terms of the cost, um, you know, overall, of course, if, if you could get away with only distributing masks, the cost there is very, very low, it's peanuts. Uh, so we're talking about a surgical mask, which is about you know less than 10 US cents, uh, 10 taka, which might be about you know, eight, maybe eight or nine rupees uh, in Indian rupees. Um, and, and a cloth mask with a 50 taka, so we're talking about less than 50 US cents and, um, and something like uh, 40, 40, 45 rupees. But if you could get away with that, that would be awesome. However, what we've learned so far is that it's unlikely that distribution is going to be sufficient. 
that we also need to add all these other in, you know, behavior change interventions and monitoring and enforcement at the same time. And therefore the net cost uh, of implementing this, um, uh, this, this program will, will be higher than, than just distributing masks. But on this, uh, we've already started working with the Bangladesh government. In fact, the Associate Director General of, General of Health is part of our research team now. And the DG of Health in Bangladesh has decided that they, all, they, they do want to uh, think about addressing this problem in large scale, and they have a plan to distribute 80 million masks. Through this project, we've also developed a lot of expertise now on proper mask design, you know, through the Stanford Labs uh, work. You know, what type of materials should be used? How do we measure filtration efficiency? What are the types of material and mass that are more effective and others that are that are much less. And we've seen that the ready-made garment factories in Bangladesh who are producing these masks for us in large scale, the same factory sometimes produces masks that have like 95% filtration efficiency, but also down to like 15 to 30% efficiency, right? So it's important for us to actually, you know, do some of the sort of basic science work to make sure that we've identified uh, high quality products. So how do you actually measure whether um, your experiment is working? I mean, you will see people wearing masks, but all that answers is whether people are wearing masks or not. How do we know whether that has actually made a difference in the community? If you want to measure you know, COVID transmission, then you have to do something called seroprevalence. You need to look for antibodies uh, among you know, the population in these communities to see if in the treatment areas we have, we are observing fewer antibodies than in the control areas. And those types of tests are quite expensive, but of course that's not something that needs to be repeated as you scale up the program. Um, in terms of the cost of the study, yes, uh, doing a study with 700,000 people is costly, right? But we should keep in mind that most of the cost here is about measurement, right? It's a research cost that doesn't need to be replicated when you think about scaling up the program once you establish uh, that, uh, that, this, that this study actually produces useful outcomes. The results of the study have significant public health interventions, not just for Bangladesh um, or South Asia, but for the entire world, presumably, both um, um, low and middle income settings, as well as, as highly developed countries, as um, economies are, are raring to get back to work. Um, what are you finding? And so we are um, proceeding very, very carefully, you know, getting ethical permission, both from Yale University internationally, but also getting it from the Bangladesh Medical Research Council and from the administrative permission from the Director General of Health. And, and so it, it will take a little bit of time for us to report the full range of results. And by a little bit of time, I mean, maybe eight to 10 weeks, right? But as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is kind of a two-stage study. The first stage is how to get people to wear masks. And the second stage is, do masks actually protect public health and does it reduce transmissions, right? And that second stage takes longer. And the reason is that we have to take blood spots at the beginning of the study, then we have to take blood spots at the end of the study to compare, you know, the antibody rates uh, to figure out in the, in the treatment areas and the control areas, we're seeing systematic differences. However, the first stage of the study, you know, how do we get people to wear masks? So that's much quicker because we run those interventions first, uh, all these behavior change interventions I, I described. And then we can immediately report in, in a few weeks uh, what, the, uh, what the change in mask wearing rates were. And that we've already piloted for a couple of rounds to kind of refine our approach. And what we've seen so far is that uh, even without those additional interventions that I described about you know, commitments and publicizing the commitments or providing incentives, even holding those aside, just doing the monitoring, the enforcement, the reminders, et cetera, has led to 
uh, about a 40 percentage point increase in mass wearing. So we're talking about uh, something like a tripling or more, that's like a 300% increase in mass wearing. Um, so, so we feel like we have the basic set of interventions well thought through now, but hopefully with the incentives, et cetera, we can get that rate even, even higher. You know, Mushpak, as I'm listening to you, I, I can't um, help but think how some of these implementation challenges are very different here in the United States where both you and I live um, and in South Asia where, where we are from. Um, you know, the trust in sort of a government intervention um, uh, varies widely from society to society. And then at this point in, in, in uh, the United States, um, uh, trust in government is, is probably at its uh, nadir in, in at least recent decades. Vaccine hesitancy is not just any public intervention, but one that um, uh, the public health community uh, may need to address very quickly in the COVID uh, pandemic as as well. Is this an, an issue in, in South Asia? You're talking about sort of behavioral change, getting people to wear masks. And what I'm hearing is that it's it's more um, of a knowledge gap rather than a hesitation or a resistance to wearing wearing masks. Uh, what have you been uh, observing? You've worked in the region for, for a long time now. Uh, yeah, so um, you're absolutely right that there are huge differences between North America and South Asia. But I'd, I'd also add to that that there are pretty large differences between different countries and regions within South Asia. Right? So, for example, as Amartya Shen, the Nobel laureate from West Bengal, has, has written eloquently about, um, that Bangladesh, while being much poorer than several sort of North and West Indian, Western Indian states in terms of GDP per capita, much poorer, but there, uh, our health indicators, our you know social achievement indicators, actually look um, more promising, much more favorable numbers compared to those states that are that are richer. Right. Um, so so this is in terms of say childhood vaccination rates, maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates being able to avoid um, deaths under the age of five. So it's clear that public health interventions, like really simple, um, low-hanging fruit, somehow has had much better success in Bangladesh than in some of our uh, neighboring countries. And I, uh, I think a lot of the credit goes to very large-scale NGOs who've done impressive work in Bangladesh, and also credit to the government for allowing the NGOs relatively free reign to do that work, right? Many of us have, I'm sure, heard of uh, BRAC, the world's largest NGO, which started in Bangladesh, but now operates in many other countries, including several sub-Saharan African countries. You know, even back in the late 1970s at BRAC's inception, right, I, I still remember that they went around, like visited 10 million households individually in order to get uh, an, uh, an orsaline substitute, um, uh, you know, in the, in the hands of, um, and, and in the knowledge of mothers so that, like if a kid has diarrheal disease, how to at least address those symptoms such that disease doesn't lead to a mortality event. So in Bangladesh, you know, over time, since the 1970s, a lot of trust has developed. I still remember, and I grew up in the 80s, and I still remember sort of the jingles that, that we saw on TV, both by the government and, and, and NGOs, on exactly what you need to do in order to protect life, say, prevent uh, a death from diarrheal disease. Right? we are earning some of the rewards of that long-term trust that has developed, right? But it also tells us that, look, you know, the work that we're doing with masks in Bangladesh and the way that we are getting people and encouraging people to use masks and if we are uh, able to successfully, you know, change their behavior, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that that exact same intervention will work in the exact same way in India, let alone the United States or in Africa, right? So it's important for us to at least the first stage of our study, uh, which is about how to get people to wear masks, we, we do need to think creatively and carefully about in, a, in any given context, how to do that well, right? Whereas the second stage of the study, the kind of expensive part measuring, you know, seroprevalence through blood spots. So that's about the behavior of the virus and how it interacts with the filtration of the mask, right? And that we think should work everywhere. So we don't necessarily need to repeat that expensive part of the study everywhere. That's fascinating, Mushwick. So are you looking at other countries in the world to see what kind of behavioral uh, nudges may be more effective in other cultures and other contexts? Yes. So uh, as we're doing the Bangladesh study, we've already set up, uh, made preparations for uh, a similar study on the first stage, how to get people to wear masks in Mali, uh, in West Africa. Right? And, and, and I've also started conversations with the team that's advising the West Bengal government on the mask wearing work we're doing in Bangladesh, because a lot of our materials, including behavior change materials, given the exact sameness of language in West Bengal can be easily transferred over uh, to West Bengal as well. And then uh, another area that your question really hits at on in terms of hesitation that we are going to have to grapple with soon is on vaccine acceptability, right? So are people going to be hesitant about taking a new vaccine uh, for COVID when one, uh, when one such vaccine appears? And here we are worried, including in countries like the United States, whether or not there's gonna be a lot of hesitation and in, uh, you know, imperfect and incomplete vaccine coverage, right? And you know, that the reason is that masks, as you mentioned, masks have been politicized in the US, um, it really shouldn't have been. And even vaccines are becoming a little bit political where um, the leadership of the country is thinking about and using vaccines as a political tool that yes, this problem is gonna be solved, so don't let it affect our re-election chances. Once that happens, then people start viewing a public health intervention through a political lens as opposed to a medical lens, which is not, not great, right? So we need to also work on re-establishing trust in, in public health officials and in uh, the pharmaceutical companies that, that are producing the vaccines, but also putting it through very careful um, clinical trials uh, to make sure that it's safe and effective. So I've been collecting some vaccine uh, acceptability data, uh, you know, with a team we're collecting in like 10 different countries around the world, but we have some data coming back from Sierra Leone already. And here we, we see that, you know, the rates of acceptability seems to have gone down relative to baseline in the sense that in Sierra Leone, like 95 to 98% of people um, report that their children has, have been vaccinated in the past uh, against other diseases, right? But right now, when we ask about their willingness to take a vaccine for COVID, if one were to appear, less than four in five households uh, say to us that they would be, ex uh, they would accept a vaccine. And given, you know, the numbers, such numbers from similar questions that we've seen around the world, that appears to be quite, uh, quite low. So we do need to think carefully about compliance and you know people in Sierra Leone are also reporting to us that they're not willing to pay very much for such a vaccine. So we need to think carefully about compliance and acceptability of, of vaccine as well. I think that's the next big challenge that we will jointly face as uh, social scientists and, and medical scientists. What I'm hearing from you is, is, is worrisome and it reminds me of uh, you know Professor Heidi Larson's work um, in, in the UK where uh, she has for a long time examined uh, this question of vaccine hesitancy. And uh, you know, she concluded early on that this wasn't uh, really a, a mishap or an accident or a bad outcome that typically starts off 
spirals of, of vaccine hesitancy, but often they are just rumors and digital technology uh, with sort of this, you know, easy access to excessive information at everyone's fingertips uh, seems to be fueling such misinformation. Have you faced this or do you have suggestions as to how this may be countered um, either in Bangladesh uh, or elsewhere? Yeah, I think trust in, um, in, in some official or leadership voice is critical. Maybe there's now too many disparate sources of information. And unless there's very clear, consistent messaging coming right from the top from a trusted voice, right, then you can, you can see these sort of what we call social network effects of rumors, you know, spiraling, right, and people learning different pieces of information from different sources, and you don't have perfect clarity from the official sources, that ends up undermining public confidence where people are like, oh, it's not clear what, what I'm hearing, what, what I'm learning, and there might be some risk here, so maybe I should just like play it safe and not, not vaccinate. Right? So I think clear, consistent messaging, allowing trusted expert voices, like people who are epidemiologists and medical researchers, you know, lead that conversation, I think it's going to be really, really critical. This is an important lesson that uh, we could have all used in this pandemic as there was such a clamor of voices and opinions uh, at the decision-making table. Uh, you know, frustration that many scientists have felt around the world is that they uh, did not have a seat at the table where um, often consulting companies uh, did and had undue influence on policymaking and governments. And I think it wasn't just... Uh failure of say political leadership it was also a collective failure that we all had which is that even the world health organization let's say going back to the masking question right their guidance for a long time was not very very clear right and the reason is that sometimes people worried about you know oh maybe we'll see a masking shortage and ppe shortage among healthcare workers right you know medical science voices were saying oh maybe we shouldn't be encouraging too much mask usage among the general public because then we'll face a mass shortage. Or we might worry that, you know, in the absence of clear evidence, like through a randomized control trial, then masks actually work. This might provide a false sense of security to people, and then they might start behaving in worse ways um, in, in other dimensions, in, in including like not social distancing, et cetera. Right? And, and that's why, you know, this kind of like research uh, becomes critical in order to make sure that even on the scientific side that we have absolute consensus and we all speak with a unified voice. Those are those are very, very important points. I think we all uh, remember uh, the CDC's uh, guidance um, uh, here in the United States in the early days as well, uh, inadvertently discouraging people from from wearing masks to prevent shortages. And, um, you know, there, there are several of us who work in the developing world who couldn't but help think why masks only meant surgical masks and why, uh, you know, to channel a Brock or a Seva or a Kudumbashree mission in India, for example, uh, one would have thought of um, alternatives to to you know industry produced surgical masks as as a bridge uh, to industry standard masks being uh, available um, at scale. Absolutely, um, great point. You know, your study is is uh, most likely to show that uh, the most effective public health interventions, just like the oral rehydrating salts that you alluded to, um, are the simple and the elegant ones. They are not necessarily technologically challenging, but implementation is, of course, complex. And simplicity does not mean that they are easy to scale. Until a vaccine arrives, masking may be all we have. Uh, we very much look forward to hearing from your team once uh, your results are out.
Thank you, Professor Mubarak. Thank you, Professor Balsari.